I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. I walked through a heavy thicket of transvestites on Provincetown's Commercial Street to get to Mailer's house at the other end of town. He obviously quite liked transvestites, despite his image. The first time I went to see him, he recommended I go to a bar that had a Judy Garland impersonator. When I got to his house this second time, Norman was sitting at his dining table looking wiry and small. He walked with two sticks and was six months from death. He was reading the New York Times and circling things. He had on one of those armless, fleecy wind cheaters and a pair of Ugg boots. When we sat down to talk, he told me to let him have it. Both barrels. And I told him I was there strictly on pussycat duty. The parish review loves you, I said, and so do I. But we get into a few things all the same. In the evening, we headed off to Michael Shea's, a restaurant not far from Norman's house that specialised in oysters. He liked to collect the shells. I have one here as I write. He drew on them with a pen to reveal the faces of Greek gods in their crevices. Norman knew everybody in the place and he asked for a kind of vodka punch. He always drank horrible drinks. At one point back at his house, he asked me to make him a rum and grapefruit and another time he asked for a red wine and orange juice. When we sat down, he said something nice about a book of mine. It was a trick he got from Kennedy. Always praise the book by an author that other people find difficult. I'll never win the Nobel Prize, you know, he said. Why are you so sure? Because I stabbed my wife. Oh. No, they won't give it to me. He wanted to talk a lot about age, and he told me I should look after myself. You know, he said, when you get to my age, you have to pee a lot. There's no distance at all between knowing you want to pee and then just peeing. I was at Plimpton's funeral in St. John the Divine not long ago, and they sat me near the front, you know. Suddenly, I had to go. I knew I wasn't going to make it all the way down the aisle, so I spotted a little side door, and I got the canes and nipped in there. Halfway down the corridor, I was looking for a John, and who do I see but Philip Roth? Hey, Philip, what are you doing here? Oh, I had to pee, Roth said. Happens to me all the time, I said. You just have to pee. The previous week, I went to see my daughter in Brooklyn, and I couldn't make it up the hill and had to stop in a telephone kiosk to pee. Oh, that happened to me. Roth said. I've done the kiosk thing. Well, Phil, I said, you always were precocious. We spoke about London. We'd met there once upon a time at the Savoy Hotel, where he gave me the end of a bottle of whiskey and wanted to figure out Fitzgerald. We're talking about the art of fiction in this interview, okay? I said during the Michael Shea dinner. 
so I'm not going to be asking you anything about stabbing your wife. This was a big concession, journalistically, since I'd met Adele Mailer a few years earlier to interview her for a BBC programme about Jack Kerouac, and she filled my ears with information about Norman and told me to come and see her again at Henry Bendo while she worked the scarf's concession. You're a gentleman and a scholar, Norman said. As a reward, I'm going to let you hear my impersonation of Lord Beaverbrook. My ex-wife, Jeannie Campbell, was his daughter, and he hated me. We just didn't see eye to eye. He then impersonated the great English press baron at length. I wouldn't know, I said, but I think that's quite good. Yeah, he hated me. But we were crazy. When I first met Jeannie, we stared at each other full of murderous rage for an hour without blinking. Then we got married. Halfway through our second interview, the next day, Norman asked me if I was tired. I've spent a lot of time with elderly people and I know what that question means. He was tired. So I said yes and followed him down a room with two single beds. We lay down and it was odd to think of it. The two of us lying there, 45 years between us, the wind and rain howling outside the house and the beams creaking like the ones in an old ship. What are you thinking about? he said. Moby Dick, I lied. Me too, he said. It was only when he fell asleep that I noticed how dark the house was. The storm was evil out in the bay. You could feel stranded out there on that finger of land. I got up and looked at a bookshelf in the hall outside the room. It had books of Norman's going all the way back to the first Reinhardt edition of The Naked and the Dead. This is what a writer's life comes to, I thought, slightly spooked. A few rows of books, the writer working and sleeping in the house alone. We spoke on the phone sometimes about Dwight MacDonald and essays he knew and loved. And one time we had a conversation by satellite at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Norman had a way of delighting audiences and he worked them, playing the old Rue, then next minute the fierce political commentator. Despite hating plastics in most machines, he agreed to some long-distance signing of books using a strange device invented by Margaret Atwood called the Long Pen, where he signed them in a tablet and a mechanical arm in Edinburgh followed his scrawl. He said he had fond memories of Edinburgh, having taken part in a famous literary scrap organised there in 1962 by John Calder. I loved Norman Mailer at school and was always writing letters to Time magazine saying he should win the Nobel Prize. They never printed any of them, but they sent a nice typewritten postcard to the school saying sorry, and my English teacher, Mr Campbell, wondered why I was so keen on outlaws. I told him Mailer had the courage to put his bad character on the page, and Campbell said I'd probably get an A in the exam. Other kids who liked books were obsessed with the Holocaust or serial killers, Stephen King, gangsters or flowers in the attic. My poison was Mailer. His writing popped off the page and in advertisements for myself I saw everything I felt a writer could be, a cosmonaut of psychic space who could find the pulse of their time in themselves. Literary heroes are often father figures which might explain why our affection is steeped in half-dislike. In You and I, Nicholson Baker's hilarious account of his admiration for John Updike, you get the sense that the older writer's style is so bossy 
the novice has to take only those parts which will help him establish a rival camp. The same could be said of Mailer's response to Hemingway, writing him fuck you letters while admiring all he wrote. I grew up liking the idea of Norman and the fire in his prose, as well as feeling uplifted by the bigness of his questions. And although I didn't agree with many of his answers, I see they left a residue. I'm glad he found violence so fascinating and feminism such a challenge. His views raised the stakes and plumbed the depths, and he himself became like an Emersonian overman, pitting civilization against nature in ways that could be astonishing. He was a character in the fiction of the 20th century itself, raised and ruined by the media and by his own ambition. At his height, he had a wonderful talent, shot with psychosis. I came to him via Marilyn Monroe. I was always reading about her and trying to work out why her story felt so personal to so many of the people I knew. She was every man's love affair with America, Mailer wrote. I remember reading that sentence and going to co-winning library for more books. They had Ancient Evenings, his vast Egyptian tome, I read the first 90 pages, and The Naked and the Dead, which was filled with the word fug and seemed both plain and good. The others came in quick succession, half-read, skimmed or devoured, and his book about the killer Gary Gilmore, The Executioner's Song, became for me a book that defined good taste in journalism. I read some biographies in between and quickly saw how far in many ways he was from the writers I considered my favourites. He didn't do location or quiet suggestion. He didn't do family history, grace, silence or epiphany. He didn't do the human heart or the things that are left unsaid. Mailer was a celebrity who knew what he wanted to say and who wasn't afraid of the loud hailer and the truncheon. He was never a subtle writer and never a complete novelist, but as a navigator, it seemed to me he was one of the heads of the profession. In any event, he was an intellectual who wanted to deal in headlines, not footnotes, which wrecked him for some, but made him a hero to me. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.